welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, New American Standard Bible. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. Exodus chapter 24 verses 3 and 4 New American Standard Bible Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today on Anchored by Truth, we're going to continue looking at some of the key scriptures in the Bible that help trace the grand story of creation, fall, and redemption as it proceeds from Genesis to Revelation. Sometimes we focus so much on the individual verses, commands, or observations within the Bible that have to do with family relations, money, prayer, or some other subject that we forget the Bible is a book that does tell one continuous story. So during this series, we're focusing on 15 key scriptures that show how that story is unfolding according to God's perfect plan. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books, and part-time pastry planner. When the muffins are buy one, get one in the grocery store, he picks the second kind we get. It's not a good idea to let him pick both kinds. Anyway, R.D., would you remind us of where we are in our progress as we continue watching the overall saga of creation and redemption unfold? Sure. Naturally, the first scripture of the 15 that we were focusing on was Genesis 1-1, which of course says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We looked at scriptures that took us to the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and then we looked at Genesis 3.15, which is sometimes termed the Proto-Evangelium, the start of the overall process of redemption. God had to initiate a process of redemption after Adam and Eve sinned, because as the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. So, unless God had been willing to leave man in a state of condemnation perpetually, God had to do something to redeem man. So, in Genesis 3.15, God made the first mention of his plan of redemption, and we covered that in our last episode of Anchored by Truth. 
In our last episode, we also looked at the part of the scripture that described God's initiation of the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant is the first of the four covenants which bear the name of a specific person to whom that covenant was delivered. Now today we're going to look at two more of those named covenants, namely, no pun intended, the Abrahamic covenant, named for the patriarch Abraham, and the Mosaic covenant, which is obviously named for the prophet Moses. The establishment of these two covenants mark two more major milestones as the plan of redemption unfolds. So, our first few scriptures described creation, the fall, and what might be called the promise of redemption. But once we moved on to the various covenants, we are now seeing how God turned the promise of redemption into redemptive reality. Exactly. So, one note that we can make immediately about the Abrahamic covenant is, just like the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant marked a time in the history of redemption where God looked across the entire world, and out of that entire world, he selected one particular person through whom he decided he would continue the redemptive process. When we discussed the Noahic covenant last time, we saw that in Noah's day, God had determined that all of the people that lived on the earth at that time had become so wicked that Genesis 6-5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the next verses go on to say that God was sorry that he had made man, and that he was going to, quote, blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, unquote. And that would have been the end of the redemptive process. But fortunately, Genesis chapter 6, verse 8 says, quote, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, unquote. Yes. So with Noah, we have the first example of seeing God make the selection of one person from all the people on earth through whom he will continue to perform his work of redemption. Now, just to go back for a second, when God created Adam, obviously Adam was the only person on the earth at that time. So when God established his initial work of creation, he created Adam, and from Adam and Eve, all the descendants on the earth would eventually come. But by the time of Noah, there were tens of thousands and possibly hundreds of thousands of people who had been born and who were living. But when God looked at those tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, he found that those people were just becoming more and more wicked. So when God was looking at the world in Noah's time, God only found one person, one man, through whom he wanted to continue his work of redemption. Now, of course, Noah had three sons, and they got married, and those were the people who went on the ark. So Noah was the first example of God looking at a populated earth, selecting one person, and then continuing his work of redemption through that one person. Well, with Abraham, we have the second example of God doing that. Now, it's not that with Abraham, God destroyed everybody on the earth. It's just that with Abraham, we have another example of God picking one person, and from that person, he is going to produce descendants, but also he is going to produce, ultimately, the Messiah, who would be a direct descendant of the person that he chose. Now, the Bible tells us that originally, Abraham was called Abram, not Abraham, and that he lived in Ur of the Chaldees, or Ur of the Chaldeans, as it's sometimes put. And that basically is in modern-day Iraq. Well, as we heard in our opening scripture, God told Abram, the same person as Abraham, just God changed his name later on, to leave Ur, where he was living, 
and go to Canaan, which is modern-day Israel. Now, God also told Abram that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So God's selection of Abram and making that pronouncement that through Abram, all the families of the earth would be blessed, that was the first announcement that God was going to start a new ancestral line, which would ultimately produce blessing for everyone on earth. And we now know that Abraham became the ancestor of the Jewish people, out of which Jesus emerged. Although that would have been 2,000 years after God first established the Abrahamic covenant. But as you said, Abraham represents God making another deliberate choice in the redemptive process. This helps demonstrate that God's plan of redemption never has been, and never will be, a haphazard process. It has always been deliberate and intentional. So even though we're only in the 12th chapter of the first book of the Bible, we see that God was already setting the stage for everything that would follow in the next 65 plus books. Yes. But as important as it is to notice that Abram, later renamed Abraham, was biologically the ancestor of the Jews, in the fourth chapter of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul tells us that Abraham was also the faith father of not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. So the establishment of the Abrahamic covenant is an absolutely key step in the overall process of redemption for two reasons. First reason, maybe the most obvious reason, is that Abraham, Abram, Abraham, fathered the specific tribe and nation that would ultimately produce the coming Messiah. But the second important thing to note is that Abraham exhibited so much belief in God's promises that Romans 4.3 says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So this pronouncement made Abraham not only the physical ancestor of all the Jews, including Jesus, but also the spiritual father of all the Jews and the Gentiles who would come to salvation by placing their faith in Jesus. So obviously Abraham is a key figure in the overall redemptive process. Abraham's belief in God's promises made Abraham also suitable to become a premier example of faith, and by doing so, Abraham not only became the physical ancestor of the Messiah, but also the faith father of all the people who would one day put their trust in that Messiah for salvation. All of this just says very clearly that Abraham's appearance in redemptive history is a critical part of the overall plan of redemption. And Abraham's role is so important that his story takes up 12 full chapters in Genesis, whereas only six chapters were devoted to the flood account. Now, the volume of scripture doesn't necessarily determine importance, but I think it's fair to say that when God devotes a substantial volume of his word to any subject, it means we should spend some time discerning what message God is trying to communicate to us. Is that a fair statement? Yes, I think it is. And by using that criteria, the next part of the redemptive process also merits considerable attention. You mean the Mosaic Covenant? Yes. Well, obviously, the Mosaic Covenant is named for Moses, who is certainly among the best-known, and maybe the best-known, figure in the Old Testament. I don't think there are many people who haven't heard about Moses, and likely seen one of the movies about him leading the Hebrew people out of Egypt and back to the Promised Land. So after the Abrahamic covenant, you're saying that the next covenant chronologically is the Mosaic covenant, right? Right. 
And using our volume criteria, we see that the description of the Mosaic Covenant takes up multiple chapters in the book of Exodus. Not only does the Mosaic Covenant take up multiple chapters in the book of Exodus, but large parts of the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy are also concerned with the Mosaic Covenant. Or at least they're concerned with how that Mosaic Covenant operated in the Hebrew nation before the time of Jesus. So, the Mosaic Covenant began with God giving Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and that's described in Exodus chapter 20. But the next several chapters also provided additional laws that the Hebrews were to observe. So it's really not fair to say that the Mosaic Covenant was just limited to the Ten Commandments. Those were the first actual laws that were part of the Mosaic Covenant, but they were just the beginning of it. And the next several chapters within the book of Exodus contains many additional requirements that were also applicable to the Jewish behavior at the time and were part of the Mosaic Covenant. Well, in the book of Leviticus, the central topic is how those ancient Jews were to worship God. We need to understand that proper worship of God is always a concern of God. God is always concerned about how His people, human beings, relate to Him. And one of the key ways in which people relate to God is by worshiping Him, but we need to worship Him appropriately. We need to worship Him in the way that God chooses for us to worship Him. And so that is much of the subject of the book of Leviticus, which was how the ancient Jews were directed to worship God. Then, of course, in the book of Deuteronomy, the Ten Commandments were reiterated in the book of Deuteronomy, and many of the additional laws that we've talked about were also restated in the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, that's what Deuteronomy actually means. Deutero is second, and Nami has to do with the law. So the book of Deuteronomy is, in effect, a second restatement of the law. So the Mosaic Covenant, while it's initiated in the book of Exodus, the full applicability of that covenant to the ancient nation of Israel and to the ancient Hebrew people is set forth in multiple books in the Old Testament. Now, it's important to note that when God gave the Ten Commandments and the additional requirements, that that's exactly what those laws were. They weren't suggestions. They weren't the Ten Suggestions. Those were the Ten Commandments. And the other laws, including those applicable to the worship of God, were binding commandments on the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. You're saying that the Mosaic Covenant was conditional and not unconditional like the Abrahamic Covenant and that many of the conditions were stated after God initially gave Moses the actual Ten Commandments. Yes, but it's important to note that there is a distinction between the Ten Commandments themselves and the additional requirements that followed the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments represent transcendent ethical principles that are applicable to all people at all times. But many of the supplemental laws, the supplemental requirements, represented a combination of civil and ceremonial prescriptions whose purpose was twofold. First, those requirements ensured that the Jews, God's chosen people, understood that God had a unique set of standards for his chosen people. And this set of standards helped preserve the Hebrews' national identity and distinctiveness. But more importantly, the second of the twofold purposes is that overall that set of laws helped point the Jews forward and prepare for a time when the civil and ceremonial requirements of the law would be set aside because their ultimate purpose would be fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah and in the Messiah doing his work. That is an important distinction. 
You're saying that the Ten Commandments, which are transcendent moral and ethical requirements, are still applicable today. But many of the civil and ceremonial laws, such as the Old Testament sacrificial system, have been set aside. They've been set aside because when Jesus came to earth, he sacrificed himself. And as the perfect sacrifice, he did away with the need for any more lesser sacrifices. Well, that's a very important part of what I'm thinking, yes. But there's more. There usually is. But in this case, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking about Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 25, which says, quote, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, unquote. And that's from the New American Standard Bible Version. Exactly. Now, some translations of the Bible use the term schoolmaster rather than tutor. So, part of the function of the law that came through the Mosaic Code was to help the ancient Israelites and us recognize that we could never keep God's law perfectly through our own efforts. In other words, through our own efforts, we were never going to be good enough for God to admit us into His heaven. And of course, since God is a perfect God... He can't admit any imperfections to exist in his presence. The New Living Translation in James chapter 2 verse 10 puts it this way, For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. Yes. So the Mosaic Covenant helped people come to grips with the fact that a sacrificial system was necessary in order for people to have a right relationship with God. So like the original covenant of works that Adam violated, the Mosaic Covenant was conditional. It had blessings for obedience, but there were also consequences for disobedience. Now, Adam violated the first covenant, and one of the consequences for Adam violating that covenant was the introduction of death into the created order. Well, with the Mosaic Covenant, God was now providing additional specificity to the expectations that he had for his chosen people. So, God knew that the people would not be capable of perfect obedience of the Mosaic Code. So, not only did God prescribe the laws, the rules, but he also prescribed the sacrificial system that would allow atonement for the violations that he knew would be coming. And all of this was part of God preparing the world for a time when God himself would make the ultimate sacrifice through his only son, Jesus. In the immortal words of John chapter 3, verse 16, quote, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, unquote. Once God himself made the ultimate sacrifice, the need for most of the ceremonial requirements of the Levitical Code disappeared. So again, we see the progress in one continually unfolding plan of redemption. Yes. In the Noahic Covenant, God had assured Noah, his family, and their descendants that there would never again be a flood that would destroy all mankind. But just as had happened between Adam and Noah, Noah's descendants gradually departed from a concerted focus on and fellowship with God. Adam began the human race, but as Adam's descendants proliferated, they gradually moved farther and farther away from the requirements that God had given Adam. 
So ultimately, there came a time when God chose Noah to continue not only the human race, but the plan of redemption. Well, after the flood and Noah and his sons started to have children and grandchildren, etc., Noah's descendants also gradually departed from a concerted focus on and fellowship with God. So Noah's descendants repeated the pattern that Adam's descendants had. So as Noah's descendants proliferated and grew in number, God ultimately, out of that growing number, chose another person, another man, to be his righteous representative through whom he would establish the people and the nation who would receive not only the amplified set of God's requirements, the law, the Mosaic Code, God chose Abraham not only to be the father of the line through whom he would give his expanded set of codified requirements, It was out of that biological descendants of Abraham through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. So the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional because once God made his choice of Abraham, he was never going to revoke it. Abraham did not have to do anything to fulfill God's plan that he was going to use Abraham to bless all the peoples of the earth. So it's important to keep all of this in perspective. That fact that God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham so that everyone knew that it was from Abraham's line of descent that ultimately all the people of the earth were going to be blessed. And that nation, Israel, and the people, the Jews, would carry out the plan of redemption in two ways. First, they would receive the law, which would be a detailed set of conditions by which they could be blessed. Ultimately, of course, they would be unable to obtain the promised blessings by obedience. So second, God would use his chosen people to one day give the world his Messiah, who would be perfectly obedient to the Father, and through his obedience, produce salvation for anyone who would place their trust in him. Exactly. And, in our study of these 15 critical verses from Genesis to Revelation, we've now seen that the first three of these men who form the focal point out of which the next group emerges, Adam, Noah, and Abraham. With Adam and Noah, literally all of the people who would ever live on the earth would be their descendants. With Abraham, many other nations, tribes, and families would continue beyond his descendants. But Abraham would be the ancestor of literally tens of millions of people because not only the Jews, but also the Arab nations trace their lineage to him. So Abraham may not be everyone's distant father, but he is the distant father of tens of millions of people still living today. Yes. And that's just speaking biologically. As we noted earlier, Abraham is the father of faith to hundreds of millions, maybe over a billion more people. Now, what all of this demonstrates is the truth that the Bible's pronouncements pertaining to people who lived thousands of years ago is still visible all around us today. Moses' role in the redemptive process was different from the roles of Adam, Noah, and Abraham. Moses' role in the redemptive process was not biological. Moses' role was theological. But the fact that it was theological and not biological did not make Moses' role any less important in the overall redemptive process. Moses' role in the process was equally redemptive to all of the biological people that God had chosen. It was through Moses that God transmitted his codified requirements for how God expected his chosen people, the Jews, and frankly all of us to behave with respect to God and with respect to each other. 
Now, it's not true that there were no requirements that governed human behavior before Moses came. Clearly, there had been requirements that applied to God from the very beginning. Clearly, God had expectations for men that you could trace all the way back to man's original creation. But Moses introduced another great dividing line in this overall unfolding of the covenant of grace. Before Moses, God had placed expectations on men, but he had not codified those expectations into a specific legal code. So from the time of Moses forward, the Jews possessed what might be termed the revealed law. Codification of requirements is important to human behavior, and that's what Moses did. He presented the codified requirements to the nation of Israel, and that included some transcendent moral and ethical principles that apply to all people at all time. But codified law by itself never saved anyone, and that was part of the function of the law, as we've talked about, was to let people know that we cannot save ourselves through our own efforts. In order for us to be saved, God himself ultimately had to be part of the process. As Romans chapter 2 verses 12 through 13 says, quote, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but in those who obey the law who will be declared righteous, unquote. Exactly. The Mosaic Covenant was an absolutely key step in the process of redemption, but the Mosaic Covenant and the law that it brought with it did not produce salvation. Full and final salvation only arrived after Jesus kept the law perfectly and then sacrificed himself on the cross. There was no need for Jesus to die because Jesus never sinned. But Jesus voluntarily laid down his life because of the sins of his people. Because Jesus did not need to die for his own sins, he was able to die for the sins of others. So when Jesus died, his sacrificial death became available for everyone else who wants to place their trust in him. His sacrificial death became available to achieve salvation for all the rest of us. So Jesus' perfect obedience of the law and his sacrificial death achieved redemption for all of the people who had been the subject of God's plan of redemption from the beginning. Wow. Even though we all know the story, when you focus upon it, it's still a mind-boggling transaction. We receive what Jesus deserved, but only because he received what we deserved. Sounds like a great time for a prayer. Because mothers are some of the biggest influences on how many people come to faith in Christ. Today, let's listen to a prayer that many mothers might be inclined to pray for their families and children. A Mother's Prayer Almighty, gracious, and heavenly Father, we praise you and honor you for being the source of all beauty and goodness. I take comfort in your strength, Lord, but so often I feel so weak in my ability to do what I know you have called me to do in providing for my children. Sometimes, O Lord, there is so much to do and so many decisions to make that if it weren't for you, I know I would fail and fall. But I praise you that you are always there with your steadfast assurance that when I am weak, then you are strong 
and that your provision is more than sufficient for all my needs. I trust in your promise that you will never leave me or forsake me and that you will stand with me in all the vocations to which I am called, especially that of being a mother. Lord God, I pray earnestly and fervently for my children, for their health, strength, and protection. I pray that you would watch over and guard them when I am with them or absent. As they grow, help me to grow with them. Help me to understand the changes in their lives and help me to change also in how I parent and serve them, except in how I love them. I want to love them now and always in only one way, with the great love that Christ has placed in my heart. I remember that I have been given the amazing privilege of being able to call you Father because you sent your only Son, Christ Jesus, to be my Savior and King. It is in His holy name that I pray and give thanks. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.